church, as we continue to worship, I'm going to invite you to take your copy of God's word and turn with me to the gospel of John, specifically John chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. John's gospel is going to be our God as we come to this Advent season and over the course of these next weeks as we worship together, we're going to be back in John chapter 1. So put a placeholder there. We'll come back to it in the coming weeks. I have a friend of mine who's a pastor out of state and their church for decades now has had a live nativity scene that they do over the course of a couple of evenings and hundreds. Really, to be honest, there, there are thousands of vehicles that will come through their church parking lot and see this living nativity scene. They'll have church members who dress as Mary and Joseph and the innkeeper, the shepherds. They have live animals and they even have a live Jesus. So uh, each year there is just sort of famously going to be a child who is born in this sweet spot that that, that child is going to be the baby Jesus for that year. And, and this pastor was telling me that one of the most asked questions that they have every year during this living nativity scene is, who was Jesus? Who was Jesus? And, and you've got adults that will say, hey, I was Jesus in 1982. And you've got, you've got teenagers that will say, I was Jesus in 2007. You've got grandmothers who are able to look at a son and a grandson who were Jesus across decades. And so now when that question gets asked, who was Jesus? Of Of course, they're not asking for a Christological dissertation on the divinity and the humanity of Jesus. Of course, they're not trying to tell us or answer the question, who was he in his essence? They want to know an earthly parentage question. They want to know, is that David and Danielle's child? Whose child was that? I do think that when we step back, that question, who was Jesus, is the central question not just to a living nativity scene, but it's a central question to ask and answer during this Advent season. How you answer the question of the identity of Jesus, who he was, is, and will always be, is the central question to our faith. And it is a question that gets answered resoundingly in John chapter one, verses one through five, but the entirety of John's gospel. That's why we'll come to it again and again this season of Advent. I love the uh, great hymn writer who would ask the question, what child is this who laid to rest on Mary's lap is sleeping, whom angels greet with anthems sweet while shepherds watch are keeping? This, this is Christ the King. The hymn writer wastes no time in asking and then answering his own question. This is Christ the King, whose child is this. John chapter 1, verses 1 through 5 gives us the clearest and most concise of statements. I think in all of the New Testament, when we read the word of the Lord, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Verse 3, all things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. We have four distinct gospels with four distinct introductions. Mark's gospel drops us into the story of Jesus's earthly ministry via John the Baptist and his earthly ministry. Luke backs us up a little bit. He gets us to Jesus via John the Baptist, but he backs us up to John the Baptist's birth. 
Matthew, not to be done by Luke, he goes further back. He gets us all the way back to Abraham. And the introduction of Matthew's gospel is, is frankly this long genealogy starting at Abraham that gets us to Jesus. John says, I, I'm going to one-up you, Matthew. I'm, if you're going to start at Abraham, I'm going to go back to Genesis 1, verse 1, in the beginning. So John's introduction takes us back to eternity past. It gives us the cosmic Christ. And what I want us to do is I want us in these verses to behold the eternal son of God. I want us to, to think of what John is doing here like a, like a person who is who's displaying this beautiful diamond and is turning this all-inspiring diamond to have the light reflect off of it from the different angles to see the different facets of this diamond. And so as we turn this beautiful diamond of the Son of God, and gaze upon him, I want us first to see the identity of the word. Throughout this message, I'm going to underline various words here or phrases that I want us to pause and to to take note of. And here we read in verses 1 through 2, and then in verse 14, in the beginning was the word. And the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God, verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we've seen his glory. The glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. So we know, John does not leave us in a lurch wondering, who exactly is the word? The word was made flesh. The word is the eternal son of God that has been, uh, who has dwelt among us was born in a manger to Mary and to his adoptive father, Joseph. We know who this is. Now the question is, is why doesn't John in this passage say, in the beginning was Jesus and Jesus was with God and Jesus was God. Why why is he using this, this phrase, the word? And what is the background of the word here? If you read any commentator on this passage, listen to any preacher throughout 2,000 years of church history, they're going to mention that this phrase of the word is not unique to John. Uh, Any commentator is going to take you back to some of the Greco-Roman backgrounds. So the word has some stoicism going there, some Gnosticism. But I I think all of those phrases or or stoicism and Gnosticism and all the backgrounds, they really pale in comparison to the background that is ripe right here in the word of God, the Bible. Notice what John does here. John takes us back in the beginning. What, what's that phrase? Well, it's Genesis 1 language, isn't it? It's Genesis 1.1. So when we hear the word and we go back to Genesis chapter 1, we begin to see, oh, I see what John's doing here. Just in the beginning when there was nothing and God does what and creates, he speaks. So God utters a word and it is so powerful that he speaks things into existence. You ever had your words fall flat? Do you know what it is to, to speak and things not happen on a dime? Any mother or father here walks into a room, needs to rally the troops to get out of the door on time, get your shoes on, fix up your room before we have to leave. And then you come back five minutes and 10 minutes later and, and, and the shoes haven't been moved, the rooms haven't been cleaned, your, your word falls flat. Anybody ever had that happen here? 
I mean, any parent, every parent knows what it is to speak. And sometimes those words aren't heeded. To, to speak and, and what you have spoken did not come into existence by your, your very utterance here. God, our Father, does not know that experience. He does not know that feeling. He, he's so powerful that when he speaks, he creates. He is so powerful when he speaks at his word, creation scenes. At his word, he is revealed. At his word, salvation is accomplished. And so he is a speaking God. Do you know how we know of him? Do you know of God because you went on this arduous journey and adventure and got to the end of it and the prize was the discovery of God? You climbed to the top of the mountain? No. We we know of God because he has chosen to reveal himself to us in the word. The word known as the Bible The word made flesh, most specifically and specially, how do we know God the Father? Through his son, the word made flesh. This, my friends, is the identity of the word. Notice also the eternality of the word. Notice what I underline here. In the beginning was the word. And the word was with God. And the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. One commentator talks about the wasness of the word. Now, now what what emphasis is going on here? What significance could be here? Well, in the original language of the New Testament, the the verbal form that is translated was can be, uh, it's a fuller expression. And it it could sound like this. In the beginning was continuing the word. And the word was continuing with God. And the word was continually God. All that John is telling us here is that there's never been a time where Jesus did not exist. That's not true for you and it's not true for me. There's no one in this sanctuary that's eternal. The state of Mississippi will tell you that David Eldridge, May 1979, entered into this earth. If you go back to May 1978, I was not. May 1977, I wasn't. All of us, all of us in this room have a time where we were not. And then we existed. Jesus is, and this is the phrase, this is the phrase that theologians use, he's eternally begotten. He's always been. He's the eternal son. He always was, always is, and he always will be. Does this hurt your head a little bit? Does this boggle your mind a little bit? Well, mission accomplished. I mean, what what we're doing here is we're peeking behind the curtain of eternity past. And we're gazing upon the unfathomable Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one God in three persons. Before there was time, there was the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Before there was time, there was the Word. Paul would say in Colossians chapter 1 that he, he being Jesus, is before all things. There's nothing Nothing that Jesus has not experienced. He he has been always. He was always. There's nothing that's new to him. Every experience of eternity past, he has had. And he's had with the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. That leads us then, as we gaze upon the eternality of the word, as we think of the identity of the word, that leads us then, as we're walking through John 1, to think about the relationality of the word. Notice what I underline here. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God. And the word was God. So Jesus is eternally with God the Father. That, that 
English word with, again, in the original language of the New Testament, it, it has a fuller sense to it. And it actually could be translated this way. The word was continually toward God. Another way to think of this is that the father and son, they're continually face to face. For, for someone to be near to one another, there's a, there's a witness. You can't be near to someone and not be with that person here. When we say, we say a phrase like, I, I can't be with you, but I'll be with you in spirit. I'll be with you in spirit, which only accentuates that we're not actually present with them. So what John is telling us is we gaze back into eternity past as that the Father and the Son and the Spirit, they've always been with one another. That there's been the deepest intimacy, the deepest relationship, the deepest love between the Father and the Son. You know, the Son's never had a crossword with his Father. The Father's never been disappointed in the Son. There's never been a falling out between the Father and the Son. There's never been a time where the Son's been in a prodigal land. And the father never knew where he was or when he would come home. That the father and the son have always been in this loving, intimate relationship. There's always been a witness. This is the relationality of the son and the father from eternity past and eternity in the future here. And this brings us to what? It brings us to our knees in absolute worship because he is holy, holy, holy. That the darkness may hide thee. Though the eye of sinful man, thy glory may not see, only thou art holy. There's none beside thee, perfect in power, in love and in purity. So we are gazing upon the stamen. What are we doing? We're turning the stamen to allow the light to shine upon it and to reflect the different facets. We've gazed upon the relationality. We've gazed upon the eternality. We've gazed upon the identity. And now we gaze upon the divinity. Again, look what I underline here. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Just so we understand what we're saying here, Jesus is fully God. Colossians chapter 1, verse 16, he's the image of the invisible God. Jesus is not God in the making. He's not God in the waiting. He's not three-fourths God. He's not maybe eventually going to figure out that he can, he can step into the role of God. No, this is this beautiful mystery of the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, one God, three persons. So the, so the Son has always been God and always will be God. This matters so much for us when we think of Christmas. It isn't that, that God sent an angel to redeem us. He sent his own Son, God in the flesh, to redeem us. We needed a redeemer. No mere human mortal could do that. No angelic creature could do that. God himself in the flesh, the eternal son of God is the only one who could do and purchase what we need for our salvation. This is the beauty of this diamond that John holds up for us to gaze upon, that we see the identity and we see the uh, divinity and eternality and the relationality of the word and it draws us to behold him. But that's not all that we see in this passage. Because as we behold the eternal son of God, we also behold what he does, the eternal creator. Notice with me in John chapter one, verse three, all things were made through him. What was made through him? All things. Without him was not anything made that was made. The Father is present in creation, the Spirit's present in creation, and the Son is present in creation. Paul would say it this way in Colossians chapter 1, verse 16, for by him all things were what? Created in heaven and on earth, 
whether visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things, all things were created through him and for him. So there is nothing that exists that Jesus did not have a hand in creating. And this is gloriously good news for you. It's gloriously good news for me. Let me just think about this. I don't know how many of you travel outside of Birmingham to go visit family. Maybe you go to sort of the family place and your grandmother, great-grandmother's house there, and it's outside, you know, unincorporated, fill in the blank. And, and there's just not all of these lights around. And so and there's just something about being there at Thanksgiving week and you look up into the stars and it's just this beautiful, breathtaking uh, canvas of creation that is before you. And it sort of takes your breath away. It's one of the reasons you like going back there. And it's all these rich memories. And you just look up at the stars and they're just too innumerable to even count. And you, you just think about there's an estimate that in the Milky Way, there's 100 to 400 billion stars. How many, how many galaxies in, in the universe? There, there are tr a trillion galaxies in the universe. So with each of these galaxies, if we took a low estimate of 100 billion stars, and then we just played that out, that means in our universe, there's 10 octillion stars. You know what that is? That's 10 with 27 zeros behind it. That's a lot of stars. And what this passage tells us is that every one of those stars was cast into place by our Savior. And, and, and if he, as the creator, has this power, how, how much more so should we trust him with us? with our lives, with us, his creation. I don't know if you know the, the name of Charles Steinmetz. Uh, Charles Steinmetz was sort of the brains, the engineering genius behind the first motor that Henry Ford made. And they consulted together. And Henry Ford, again, as you know, is the founder of the Ford Motor Company. The story goes this way, that uh, one of the plants, the assembly line went down. Ford brings in all of his best men. They can't get it working. So he has to call Steinmetz into the plant to get the assembly line working again. He comes in, Steinmetz does, and the way the story goes is that he begins to tinker a little bit. And in about 15, 20 minutes, he gets the thing fully operational again. He goes back home. He sends Henry Ford the bill, which was $10,000. And he says, well, $10,000, 90 years ago, that's equivalent to $150,000. Henry Ford opens up the bill. He sends back a letter. Charlie, don't you think that bill's a little steep here for just a little bit of tinkering? Steinmetz, he got, that, he got back the response from Henry Ford. He wrote out another letter, revised the bill, and he's put on it tinkering. $10. Knowing where to tinker, $9,990. Church, you get this, don't you? Jesus is the perfect creator. And he knows how to keep your life in perfect running order. If I may, he knows exactly where to tinker in your life and my life for us to optimally run, for us to optimally flourish. And if that is true, and it is true, if he is this glorious son of God who has always been, who's created all that exists, 
Is there anything less that he deserves than our all? Is there anything less for us to give him than our every being and every breath? If Jesus is the one behind the story of our universe, then that means he's the author of the universe. And if he's the author of the universe, that means he's the author of the galaxy. And if he's the author of the galaxy, that means he's the author of our earth. And if he's the author of our earth, that means he's the author of your story and my story in this earth that we inhabit. And if he is the author, he's got something to say about how we live out our lives. One of my English professors from college told me the story. He was a graduate student at uh, the University of Mississippi at Ole Miss. Going back decades ago, Willie Morris, the famed writer, was the writer in residence. Willie Morris is a good old boy, my dog Skip, writer in residence at Ole Miss. My professor was taking a contemporary fiction class, and it was at the height of what's called reader response interpretation, literary theory. You walk through the class, and you're like, well, I see this in this I see this and I see this meaning in this. And you just walk through the class and sort of read a response. What, what you see wins the day because you see it. And the meaning is found in the way that you engage with the text there. And so the way the story goes is my professor's in the class and they walk through and, and this person says this and this person says that and this person sees this and this person sees that. The next class period, because Willie Morrison is right there in Oxford, Mississippi, Right there on the campus of Ole Miss, professor brings him into the class. He stands up and he says, I wrote this book 20 years ago. And this is what I meant when I wrote this. Now, can you imagine, could you imagine any person in that class saying, <clears throat> excuse me, I know that's what you said, but I happen to disagree with what you said. It meant, because I see. No, he's the author and if he's the author, he's the authority. And as he's the author, what he says goes. That, that's a curious connection, isn't it? I don't know if you think about this often, but, but author and authority, author's embedded in authority. The one who is the author actually gets to be the authority. And this is what John is telling us in this passage here. The author is the authority. Jesus Christ is the author of the universe. And none of us, in this sanctuary, decided where we were going to be born. None of us picked out the place or the time where we were going to be born. None of you in this sanctuary, me first and foremost, none of us consulted with the creator of the universe and decided, I'll take those parents instead of those parents right there. Not a single one of us had that say. We are here right now because of a greater authority. And as we behold the author of the universe, as we behold him and gaze upon him, we then begin to realize that he is worthy to be the authority in your life and in my life. And so the question to answer this morning isn't, is he the author? But rather, is he your authority as the author and perfecter of your faith? You see, if we know that him, is there any other response when you know what child it is who lay to rest on Mary's lap is sleeping, that this is Christ, the King. And if he is the King of kings and Lord of lords, 
my friends, is he reigning over your life? That's a question not just for the first Sunday of Advent, but that's a question that we must answer each day of our life. If he's the author, is he our authority? Let us pray.